Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. We're so glad to have you listening to the Beeson Podcast today. You know, of all the episodes we do, I think this series on preaching is my favorite because I get to do it with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. He's right here with me in the Beeson Podcast studios. And today we're going to hear a sermon by Dr. Ben Witherington, given here at Beeson in February 2017, a sermon called Transfigured, A Vision of Worship. Dr. Witherington is the Gene R. Amos Professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, a wonderful, prolific scholar out of the Methodist Wesleyan tradition, and you're going to love this sermon by Dr. Witherington. Don't you think, Dr. Smith? I'm absolutely certain about that, Dean George. Uh, His title is Transfigured, A Vision of Worship, and he treats this um, sermon by using three texts, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Revelation 4. Uh, The subject matter is worship. And each character, that is Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John on the island of Patmos, each uh, experiences uh, a transformation, a transfiguration with a small t, through visions of God as they respond to worship. The sermon type, Dean George, uh, is an intertextual kind of genre, exposing all three authentic worship experiences. It's very important that our listeners notice the consistency in terms of the ministry of the word and the ministry of music brought together. In fact, um, Dr. Witherington sings in each one of the three moves from Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Revelation chapter 4. Profound statements like, those who have an encounter with God paradoxically widens and narrows the gap between us and God, so much so that the widening is the distance between dust and deity, and the narrowing is when God comes down to commune with us. That's just profound. Careful use of language. I think Dr. Withington says more by saying less. His thesis is getting a glimpse of what is happening above us uh, helps us to become God's music below heaven so that we become, in my words, a Kodak moment of the future state of eternity. He takes and defines worship by using the old English word, uh, which comes out to be worth-ship, that God is worthy of our worship. Once again, uh, the time allotment, I think, is very, very crucial. He spends uh, the least amount of time on the Ezekiel uh, portion, and then more time with Isaiah, and then closes with uh, the greater amount of time expended on the passage in Revelation 4. The doctrine, listen for this, the doctrine is the inextricability of the Word and the Spirit brought together in all three. And this this question that is brought up, uh, nowhere, he says, can I uh, get the most out of worship unless I give the most in worship. And that's what he believes worship is. It's not so much getting, but it's giving. What does God really desire? Does corrective surgery all the way through? He really does, polemically and and in an apologetic way. Worship is not spectating. 
Uh, it's participation. Worship is not giving people what they want, but giving God what he desires. And worship is about being, uh, not being in the right mode or the right mood or the right place or tune, but it's having an encounter with God. This is highly catechetical. He's teaching us all the way through, and he's closing at the end of uh, this passage with his experience in Italy and causing the congregation to sing together, Oh, come, let us adore him. I am ushered into the presence of God, Dean George, and have a worship experience as I listen to Dr. Ben Witherington. After you hear this lecture by Dr. Witherington, you will never again say that theologians cannot sing. Amen. We're going to hear a said sung lecture by Dr. Ben Witherington from Hodges Chapel right here at Beeson Divinity School. A wonderful sermon lecture transfigured a vision of worship. A reading from Revelation 4, 1 through 11, the New International Version. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. This sermon is an intertextual sermon, and there are actually three texts for this sermon. Isaiah 6, or as our British friends would say, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Revelation 4. It happened to Isaiah a long time ago. He went into the temple, and he encountered more than he had counted on. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He is high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. 
high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the angels cried, holy, the angels cried, holy, the angels cried, holy is his name. The temple, you see, is the juncture between earth and heaven. And Isaiah had a close encounter of the third kind with the Almighty, an intimate encounter. Now, the thing about any such encounter, if it is really God you are encountering, is that it is a matter of communion between two beings of very different orders. A close encounter with God, paradoxically enough, both widens the gap between us and God and in a different way, narrows it. It widens it because any such genuine encounter makes clear that God is God and we are so not God. Notice what Isaiah says. His instinctive reaction to that encounter is, woe betide me, I am a man of unclean lips. Not a good condition to be in if you're a prophet of the Lord. God is the Holy One. And Isaiah, even with his priestly and prophetic pedigree, is so not the Holy One. Worship happens when the creature realizes he is not the creator and bows down before and adores the one who is. That is true worship. It's about giving up, surrendering, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, bowing down, recognizing and restoring the creation order of things in worship. The creation order is restored. But the gap between us and God is also narrowed when we worship because when we bow down, God condescends to come down to our level and honors our worship and inhabits our praise and we encounter him. Worship creates a communion which maintains the separation of God and humankind, but a loving relationship between the two. G.K. Chesterton once put it this way, a creature is not made so that he can worship himself any more than you can fall in love with yourself, or if in a fit of narcissism you do so, it will be a monotonous courtship. <laughs> worship is not about cozying up to God, our buddy or pal. Of course, there is intimacy with Abba, but we are in no way being set up in a partnership of equals with God in worship. A partnership or koinonia between equals results in fellowship, not worship. I like what Tom Skinner used to say, fellowship is a bunch of fellows in the same ship. That would not be us and God. So let's be clear, Isaiah had an experience of worship. Any experience which seeks to put us up on God's level is not worship. It is inappropriate. It is even shocking familiarity. Indeed, the Bible has a word for it, idolatry. God condescends and remains God we do not ascend and become as gods. If we once ceased to be the creature and became absorbed by the deity, we would no longer be capable of worship. Worship 
inherently implies a distinction between the worshiper and the one who is worshiped. Furthermore, when real worship happens, we become even more creaturely, even more what we were intended to be as the image of God. We become eternal worshipers of the triune one. Now, the English word worship actually comes from a combination of two words, worth and ship from the Old English. It has to do with honoring, giving homage to one who is worthy to receive such praise, attention, obeisance. Thou art worthy, thou art worthy, thou art worthy, O Lord. We, by contrast, are not worthy of such absolute, unconditional devotion and adoration. Idolatry is the polar opposite of true worship. It is ascribing deity or near deity to and sublimating yourself before something that is less than God. Hear me now. Absolute, unconditional surrender to a human ruler, a parent, a friend, a conqueror, a lover, a teacher, a mentor, or even your spouse is idolatry. There are many forms idolatry can take, but let's consider another worship experience, that in Ezekiel 1. Just like Isaiah, Ezekiel was taken by surprise by God, the hound of heaven, who just keeps coming our way in divine condescension, even in surprising places. Now, Isaiah had his encounter in the temple and was transfigured in the temple, but Ezekiel was sitting by the canal Chebar in Iraq in exile, swatting mosquitoes the size of small birds and feeling bad for himself. In fact, I picture him singing the blues because on that very day of that vision was the day he should have been anointed priest and served first in the temple in Jerusalem, but he's in Iraq. So there he is by the canal Chebar going, my mama done told me I'm having a bad day. And what happened? What happened? For Ezekiel, it was not a matter of being in a holy place. He was in a sandbox called Iraq. What happened was God came to him. God appeared to him. Worship was not a matter of a holy place for Ezekiel. Rather, it was a matter of a holy time which encountering, involved encountering a holy God. The vision is crucial, not only for Ezekiel, but if you've been a student of the Bible, you should compare Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, because they are variations on a theme. The vision of Ezekiel is modified by John of Patmos in the throne chariot vision in Revelation 4. Now, to be sure, John himself is also not in a temple, not in a church, not in a synagogue. He's on a rock pile called Patmos. He's probably serving some, in some kind of penal colony. So I picture him going, you load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can go. I owe my soul to the Roman Empire, or something like that. Something like that. 
He's in exile. He's in exile just like Ezekiel, and his brain is scripture-saturated. Oh, to have more scripture-saturated brains. Can I get an amen? What it says is this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard and I saw. You know, one of the reasons worship doesn't much get across to an awful lot of people when they come to church is because, friends, they aren't in the spirit on the Lord's day, and they're not prepared to hear or to see. It's not a matter of holy space, not for John and not for Ezekiel. It's a matter of a holy and receptive spirit and condition. But with the mention of the Lord's day in Revelation 1, it may also have been a holy time, the proper time for worship. It is no accident that Ezekiel had a vision on the very day he should have been anointed priest in the temple in Jerusalem. It was a holy time for him. You know, Jesus helped us with this. He helped us to see when he said, neither on Mount Gerizim nor on Mount Zion, but whenever and wherever, in spirit and in truth, that is genuine worship. Our proper text for this morning is Revelation 4, and it raises compelling questions about the nature of worship and our posture and our preparation for it. So often we hear people say, well, I don't go to that worship service because I don't get anything out of it. But wait a minute, who's supposed to be doing the worshiping here? If it is congregational worship, then the primary question should be, where can I go to best give praise and worship to God? Not where can I go to get the most out of it? There was an elderly woman in my home church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and she could barely see or hear. She had hearing aids that were like Bose earphones, and she had glasses as thick as the old glass Coke bottles. And at one point, there was a young woman who sit in the same pew, because as you know, many are called, but pews are chosen, right? <laughs> Every Sunday, same pew, old lady, young lady, okay? And she couldn't understand why the old lady was there when she could barely see and barely hear. She said, ma'am, I admire that you keep coming, but I know that you can hardly hear and hardly see, so why actually are you here? Her reply was memorable. I'm not here for what I can get out of the service, but what I came to give, my worship to my Lord. I get the bulletin mailed to me in advance, and I get out my magnifying glass, and I read through it with my large print scriptures. I read all the scriptures we're going to hear, and I read the hymns in advance that we will sing, and I think and pray through what God's word for me may be on that particular day. I come to worship prepared to give worship, though I don't get as much as I used to in that particular hour. Well, the young woman was stunned. You see, she was caught up in the consumer mentality of many and simply applying it to worship. She just assumed that you choose a worship service like you choose a grapefruit. Depends on what you like and what your taste is and whether it looks good or not. Let me tell you right now, that's not the basis 
on which you should decide where and when you should worship. You shouldn't be considering yourself consumers of worship. You should be considering yourself producers of worship of the triune God. It's not about what you can get out of it, but where God might be best pleased to receive your worship and your service. Worship is not now, hear me church, never was intended to be a spectator sport or the performance of the few on the platform for the benefit of the couch potatoes for Jesus in the pews. The consumer approach to worship puts the emphasis entirely on the wrong syllable. It leads to pastors desperately seeking to change worship patterns and acts. So it'll attract a bigger crowd on the theory that worship should be a matter of giving the people what they want and crave. Wrong. Worship is a matter of giving God what he desires and requires. Let me say that one more time. Worship is not about giving the people what they want and crave. It's about giving God what he desires and requires. If you end up with a nice buzz because of the worship service, well, that's a bonus and a byproduct, but it's not what we're striving for. John of Patmos was not looking for a more au courant worship service when he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and received a vision. And what a vision it was. Consider first what was the prerequisite for John receiving this vision. It was not that he was in the right mood because the music had set the right muse mood. Let me tell you about music in worship. The function of music in worship is to minister to you in parts of you that are not cognitive so that your whole self is caught up in love and wonder and praise. Music is not a performance of the few for the benefit of the many because we like the tunes. For John, it was not about him being in the right place. It was rather that he came prepared for an encounter in holy time. He came prepared to give honor and praise and glory on the Lord's day. He was wide open to the spirit to such a degree that Hex doesn't say the spirit was in him. It says he was immersed in the spirit and there is a difference he doesn't say the spirit was in him though that was certainly true it says he was immersed in the divine presence you see he had prepared himself for worship this likely means that he had prepared his heart before he received his vision. He had repented of his sins. He'd been shriven or cleansed. And so he boldly approached the divine presence and immersed himself in his God. And then God gave him this incredible vision. Now it's a vision of heavenly worship. Worship that transfixed and transfigured him. He saw representative samplings of all the different orders of creation. These folks that you have right here, the four different orders of animals lifting up the throne of grace, all of creation was meant to worship the one true creator God. The rabbis had a saying about those four creatures. They said the ox is the king of all beasts of burden. 
The eagle is the king of all birds of the air. He said, but the human being, the human being is the king of all creatures, great and small, on earth. But God is the king of kings. And in this scene, we have 24 elders bowing down. We have the animals lifting up. We have the angels in heaven crying, holy, holy. All the orders of creation are properly ordered, and their chief end and aim is the worship of the one true God. It is as John Knox said, the chief aim of humankind is to love God and enjoy and worship him forever. The living creatures with eyes all around, wide-eyed, were saying, holy, holy, holy. Why is God worthy of such worship? Because he is the creator God who made the, all the creatures for just such a purpose. The most important act on earth is worship. Hear me now. The most important act on earth doesn't happen in Washington. It doesn't happen in Moscow. It doesn't happen in political arenas. It doesn't happen in Congress. It doesn't happen in the Supreme Court. It happens right here in worship. This is what we were intended for. This is our intended purpose, to worship God now and in the hereafter. And hear this, when we truly worship God, we are worshiping with the saints in heaven. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and they are saying, come on, earth, praise your maker while you have breath. So let's review what we have learned. True worship requires that we be in the spirit at the appropriate time for worship. This in turn implies that we come as true worshipers, wide open to give praise and glory to God, having already received the grace necessary to do so. Having put aside all distracting thoughts, all twittering and tweeting, having putting our cell phone on stun, no more distractions, just Focus on God. We come to give primarily rather than to get. But hear the good news. God also comes to give in genuine worship. Wherever two or more are gathered, God is there with us and he comes to give as well. God bows down as we bow down to God. He comes to relate, to empower, to heal, to save, to give vision to his people, to proclaim his truth. The vision John received was of heavenly worship, but oh, it has such an application for earthly worship as well. You see, the chief aim of worship is that we be caught up in love and wonder and praise of God, and finally, for a moment, forget about ourselves and our trials and our worries and focus on God himself. In other words, we get a glimpse of what is happening above, which is also a vision of our destiny when heaven comes down and glory fills our souls, when we become God's music, when we become God's true temple, when we become the bride, when we become the new Jerusalem. But that is a subject for another day. At the end of a tour of the lands of the Bible, we finished in Rome in the catacombs. It was August 
and it was a relief to go down into the catacombs where it was cool on a Sunday morning for worship. We had been pilgrims for two weeks in Greece and in Italy, and we spent the last Sunday morning in the catacombs on the edge of the Eternal City. We were about 200 feet underground, and it had been arranged that we would have a worship in one of the niches where the saints had been buried, and you could look up and you could see the holes in the wall where the saints had been buried. The caskets were all gone, but it was numinous. They seemed to be there with us. It was a barrel vaulted all apse, just like this one, and it resonated with sound. There was a heavy sense that the saints were present. I preached on 2 Corinthians 4, eternal treasures in earthen vessels, and we took Holy Communion together. Now, our local guide was a man by the name of Giorgio Abate. He was a nominal Catholic, and he had been deeply moved by the service, perhaps especially by the singing. And he said he came to me and tugged on my sleeve before we were about to serve communion and said, Dr. Ben, I am a sinner, but I would like to be closer to my Lord. Can I please take communion? And I said to him, hear these words as I said to them all. Ye who do truly and earnestly repent and are in love and charity with thy neighbor, draw near with faith and receive the holy sacrament. And in tears he came to the altar and wept and received the bread and the wine together. And we all praised God and we sang this, Venite adoremus, Venite adoremus, Venite adoremus, Dominum. Oh, come, let us adore him. Will you sing it with me? Venite adoremus, venite adoremus, venite adoremus, dominum. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Him, Christ the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>